This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, Geraldine Dude with you, and a big welcome to Extra. It's just lovely to have you company each Monday. Consequences of sticking your head way above the parapet, of deliberately and publicly backing your talent in one of the more mercurial ventures in modern life. That's what we're going to look at first. Being a successful stock picker, an investor extraordinaire who persuades thousands of others to park their money with him, because it's usually a him. Their risk-taking can offer incredible yields in terms of fees and acclaim and trust. But when circumstances change, as they invariably do on stock exchanges, the investor kings can get burned. So can their clients. In the last couple of months, Australia's hosted a story like this of the highly successful Hamish Douglas, who's been executive chairman of the Magellan Group, which he co-founded in 2007. And the story reached a climax of sorts this week when Mr Douglas took indefinite leave to attend to his health after an anus horribilis, personally and professionally. There's now incredible effort to stabilise Magellan uh, with about $93 billion worth of funds under management. Many of our superannuation funds will have money placed there, as, full disclosure, I do too, in a rather small way. It's not often such a personal, tough story from this world of finance allows us some real glimpses into this curious world of stock pickers. To help us understand more and to tackle some of the unanswered questions, I'm pleased to welcome back to Saturday Extra Graham Hand, Editorial Director at Morningstar and Managing Editor at firstlinks.com.au to the program. Graham, welcome. Thanks very much, Geraldine. Good morning. Uh, What type of person is attracted to stock picking and investing at this type of level? What drives them? Yeah, what a tough business. Uh, Let me just give a bit of context that if you look at the the long-term data from, say, Standard & Poor's over 10 years, that only about 20% of active um, equity managers, stock market managers, actually outperform the benchmark. So that's only one in five over a longer-term period. But even within those so-called winners, none of them outperform every year in that, say, 10-year period. And in fact, something like 80 to 85% of them have a three-year period of underperformance. So everyone in this market who is successful um, goes through periods of underperformance. And there is a hint in that on what it takes to be uh, successful. You know, you've got to power through those difficult periods. You've got to have um, resilience. You've got to be able to um, tell your story. And, you know, you, you've got to be able to convince people to stay with you when things are tough. Yes. Um, and there's usually only, from my observation, tell me if I'm wrong, there's only about three in Australia at any one time who are really soaring sky high. Uh, and may, they may get replaced, and that's what we want to talk about. But is there a certain temperament that would you would say is most suited to stock picking? Is it people able to make decisions that go against the grain when everyone's rushing away, you rush 
in or uh, is it just exceptionally cool-headed or what? Look, the difficulty that fund managers have is it's not like being a sort of a golfer where you, you know, you know if someone is 10 under par, they are a talented golfer. There is a barometer on which it can be clearly measured. And the same with like a pianist and a doctor, you know, you can, you can tell from the performance how well they are doing. But stock pickers are, um, are measured against the market and the market is this emotional beast. And um, as you know, it responds to irrational behavior. You know, we all see people herding together when the mm. market rises and, and panic when the market falls. And yeah, you've got to be, you've got to be self-confident enough. You've got to be strong enough to stand against that. And, you know, there's a lot of very talented people who can go 10 years underperforming. And you've, you've got to stand in front of your thousands of investors every few months and explain why it looks like you're not doing very well. That that takes a lot of resilience. Actually, uh, Kia Nielsen, who was uh, the founder of Platinum Asset Management, who was one of the three that, I, that you know, I, at the time with Hamish Douglas, I'd say John Sevior, who used to be at Perpetual, who actually is now at Early Management, who uh, Early Investments, that is part of the Magellan Group, from what I can glean. Um, he said something very interesting this week because he's also, he's stepped back now. He, I think he was there for a long time, extraordinary investor. Yeah. The fact is, he said, once you're in the game, you just work so hard and it comes at a cost to relationships or health or ego. Those are the three big costs. Generally, it'll be relationships. And then if you're lucky, it won't be health. And if you're lucky, it won't be ego. But one of those things will suffer. <laughs> Extraordinary quote. Yeah, look, the market never sleeps. You know, when the Australian market closes, the UK market opens. When the UK market closes, New York um, opens. And of course, you've got you know dozens of stock exchanges all over the world. So you know, you you might have a quiet time on a, a Sunday afternoon. And so, you know, these people um, wake up at six o'clock every morning, listen to Radio National News, um, <laughs> and then they get onto Bloomberg and Reuters. And, you know, it's all go over, over Vegemite on toast with coffee, and then you're into the office. And, you know, it's absolutely, it is, it is full on. And then what happens when you go on holidays? You know, you, you don't lie on a beach for two weeks, you know, you're, you're watching the market, people are contacting you. It, it, it's, a, it's a tough gig and you do that for, you know, 20 years and it's very easy to get over it. But there's huge, repeat, huge yield for doing all that. You know, the, 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 the sort of figures being thrown around, around the, the, re, the remuneration for Hamish Douglas are just sort of eye-watering. And that actually leads me to my next question about this whole notion of key man risk. Was there far too much invested, both explicitly and implicitly, in someone who soars above the crowd, the rock star fund manager, um, who dominates the meetings and so on and so forth. Are we learning something out of this? Well, perhaps we are. And here I would distinguish between uh, investing and, you know, marketing and distribution. So in, in the case of, of Magellan, there is a large and talented 
investment team supporting Hamish. You know, we we now find uh, this out. I mean, I mean, I know it's been there, but it's very interesting to me that this is now being emphasised uh, to the extent that it is. And it certainly, well, I mean, it was obviously implicit, but it wasn't, it didn't hit the headlines. Yeah, but, you know, if you were on the board of Magellan and, and involved in Magellan, and, and here you have this, uh, you know, superb marketer in, in Hamish sure. Douglas, who really, you know, I've been, must have been to a dozen of his presentations. They're very entertaining. He's very convincing. You know, that's a great asset for for the business. And so, you know, Hamish did become the front man, but very heavily involved in the investing side as well. And look, in the past, I've interviewed, uh, you know, the head of research, um, a lady called Bahari Ross, very talented person in her own right. You know, maybe they should have been pushing her to the fore a little more and emphasizing the, the depth of the team. And that's that's one of the things that they are obviously learning now. Mm, yes, well, uh, interesting. See, Jonathan Shapiro uh, has written about this this week too. The reality is we all long for a rock star fund manager. The investing public will not stop believing that someone has a special gift to beat the market, a stock tip that will make them money and an eye for trade. The next, next Warren Buffett is just an addition away. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, that's right. But, you know, I've been to literally hundreds of of um, fund manager presentations. And, you know, what really strikes me is they're all good. I mean, why wouldn't they be good? These are smart people who've been, you know, probably had 10 years of education in what they do and then 10 years before they become a portfolio manager, they live and breathe this stuff. You know, they talk about their um, portfolio day and night and when they get up and present, I've hardly ever seen a bad presentation. So it makes it difficult for for an investor who listens to someone to, de- to really decide, um, is, is that person genuinely talented or are they just a, a good presenter? You know, this yes. the business of picking active managers is very difficult. I suppose the question for people looking on with, say, little bits or bigger bits of money is whether how you spot whether there's too much emphasis in a particular company on a key man, usually a key man. Um, You know, there's been some quite interesting research done about whether the finance industry, more than other industries, is particularly prone to this business, vulnerable to key person risk, as it's talked about, as it's talked about, which and could very much affect the the way your money works. Yeah, and yeah, we do like to hear the uh, the rock star fund managers. I mean, who who doesn't love a, a Warren Buffett quote? You know, <laughs> and and you know the fact that um, someone like Warren Buffett say, says such pithy comments um, puts him a, ahead of the crowd, and you know that's a little bit of a, a, a problem in that. You know what? What you what you want from a, a, a fund manager? You know, you you think some of them should be you know introverts studying the numbers all the time, but very often that person is in the back office doing doing the number uh, crunching. And yeah, we do get we do get attracted to the to the rock stars. Yes, I mean, and of course, you know, he says himself, and I'll get out of this, that Jack Ma, he's bet on Jack Ma and the uh, Alibaba, and he had no idea that the Chinese government was going to behave like it did. Well, a lot of people around the world didn't, but it, I wonder whether that completely rattled his confidence, you know, because it was such a big bet and it, it really did go 
wrong in many ways. Look, this this raises a really important point, Geraldine, um, that very often a, a fund manager's style or the type of investing that they do just doesn't work at a particular moment. Now, I think a really good example is um, Anton Tagliaferro's Investors Mutual, who, you know, equally well known, been in the market for 25 years. For the first 15 years, you know, numbers versus the market were exceptionally strong. But Anton's way of picking stocks is to look at sort of traditional industrial companies, you know, the people like Amcor and Brambles and Horizon. He is a sort of fundamental value stock picker. But in the last five to 10 years, the market has just been, you know, agog with tech stories and growth stories. And so, in, in, if you compare Anton's number over three, five, seven, and 10 years, he's behind the index. Is, is Anton suddenly become a worse investor? No, he's still a very talented investor. It's just his style doesn't meet the times. And what's happened in the last year with um, with Magellan is some of the big picks, as you say, Alibaba, Netflix, but, but also Netflix, exactly. Yeah. Um, they have they've come back to the field a bit, or in the case of the of the China tech, you know they've been hit by China regulations. So that idea, which was working really well two or three years ago, just isn't working at the moment. And um, you know that might go on for a few years. And the, I, I say to people, if you're going to choose an active manager to manage your money, it's an eight or ten year decision. You know, just because that person has a bad three years. That doesn't mean they're any worse than they were when you started. It's just their style may not be working. Yes, one of my listeners has said, uh, Warren Buffett doesn't trade. He studies long-term and buys. He never trades. Well, okay. um, Look, thank you very much indeed, Graham. I mean, it's it's been an extraordinary story to watch and, um, you know, very tough, no doubt, for him himself. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Geraldine. Bye. Graham Hand, the Editorial Director at Morningstar and Managing Director at firstlinks.com.au. Well, turning our attention to Hong Kong up next, struggling to maintain COVID zero. This week, Hong Kong has brought in the tightest social distancing rules since the start of the pandemic. In a bid to control a rapidly escalating Omicron outbreak, it's closed places of worship and shopping centres, and no more than two people can meet in private or public. Now, to give you an idea of the numbers, there were more than a thousand cases, a thousand new cases this Wednesday in Hong Kong, compared with just two in the whole of December. But more than two years on from the start of the pandemic, people are starting to question how long the city can continue its strict COVID zero policy. A large Facebook group of uh, Hong Kong mums, not usually known for posting political comments, this week accused the government of holding its citizens hostage with these new COVID measures. Now, joining me to discuss this quite complex situation in Hong Kong and whether the city and indeed mainland China have any real prospect of opening back up to the world in the near future is Tim McLaughlin. He recently wrote a piece for The Atlantic on the topic and he's based in Hong Kong, Welcome, Tim. Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Look, is there a sense, a sense on the ground that people are running out of patience with COVID zero? 
you know, we saw this new wave coming for the past week and a half or, you know, maybe two weeks or so. Compared to the previous waves that we've had in Hong Kong, they're calling this the fifth wave. So I guess we've had four before. It, people didn't seem to be taking it quite as seriously. You know, last time, I think when there was people urged to stay at home and to like maybe, you know, avoid going to to, you know, public places and parks and things like that, people really kind of abided by it. You know, this time there doesn't seem to really be a change in many people's habits. Like if you go through central Hong Kong, the last few mornings, it looks like a normal, you know, kind of work day. And I think that stems from a number of things. I think it stems from the fact that, you know, people have, you know, friends or relatives maybe abroad who have seen Omicron come through their own communities and and realize that it's maybe more mild variant. Uh, People obviously compared to 2020, we know a lot more about COVID. People are, you know, a fair number of people have vaccines. And then ultimately, I think also, as you pointed to, there's kind of a frustration here and a tiredness with dealing with these kind of uh, lockdowns that seem to come and go, um, that have come and go over the past two years. There is a new term emerging, isn't there? Dynamic COVID zero. What does that mean exactly? Good, good, good question. You know, pinning down exactly the meaning of that, I think, has been a bit of a challenge. Uh, on December, in late December, the 28th, I believe, Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, you know, she put out a statement saying that the goal here was to maintain zero infections uh, locally, right? That we were still going for this hard kind of zero COVID goal. And that was, that was uh, again, late December. But then we have Chinese state media the past, uh, you know, week or so describing dynamic zero COVID as <clears throat> simply measures that would allow for some infections, but then work to mitigate them as fast as possible. So, so it's the and, balancing and, you know, act. Right. And so Carrie Lam, the, you know, the chief executive here, has not really explained very clearly kind of what that is. And I think that's speaks to a larger issue that we might get to here is that the messaging around COVID, you know, what the goals are and how Hong Kong could reopen are, you know, non-existent right now. The messaging has been uh, fairly disastrous. And look, I suppose the impact of this is the, again, looking to try to judge the attitudes of mainland China because mainland China uh, and state media there have been warning that any shift towards living with the virus will result in disaster for the city and the and it'll probably affect quarantine fee travel free travel with mainland china now uh, and look we've had versions of this debate here too so it's not as if we don't understand it but what sort of position does it put carrie lamb in yeah so i mean i think what's unique to, to you know to hong kong is that there is not a huge amount of agency within or ability within the government to make these decisions, right? The, in my interviews, in statements from Carrie Lam's you know, executive council, which is essentially her cabinet, it's become clear that Beijing is in charge of the overall policy of handling COVID for Hong Kong, right? And so and in that sense, Hong Kong is being treated much like any other mainland city and that it needs to maintain this, you know, very strict kind of zero COVID uh, approach. And so hemmed in by that, you know, the difficulty is that Hong Kong has a worldwide, you know, stock market. It's an international finance center. You know, it imports a lot of its goods and food. We've seen a few kind of sporadic shortages here and there in the last few days. So kind of how you carry that out uh, in a city that's so connected to the world or was so connected to the world is proving to be very challenging. Well, look, just a couple of facts about here. Among, mainland China has a relatively high vaccination rate of 88%, according to the state statistics. Hong Kong's is 
much lower. Um, a University of Hong Kong study found that China's uh, Sinovac vaccine offers little protection from Omicron and mainland China it still has no access to mRNA vaccines, though Hong Kong does. So, I mean, has China tried to procure mRNA vaccines from the West? Do you know this? I feel it's a really under... I don't understand quite what's happening there, or are they have they made a decision to rely only on their own vaccines? One of the interesting things, again, an interesting difference here between you know Hong Kong and the mainland is BioNTech, the German firm, uh, you know, has applied for the green light for its vaccines, its mnra vaccines, to be used in mainland China, and they're still waiting. You know, the CEO spoke to spoke at a conference, was quoted in Reuters, I think, in December uh, or perhaps January, talking about how they're they've been waiting for months and months and months, and they're still waiting. That vaccine, mnr vaccine, BioNTech, is available in Hong Kong, unlike the mainland. People do here have a choice between that or uh, Sinovac, right? And so, you know, I think what we're getting at and talking about here is that the one of the the bigger issues again is that the as the, the the scholarship that you quoted says this the Chinese made vaccines domestically made inactive you know vaccines are not as good at protecting against Omicron and there's a you know more and more evidence that shows that so I think one of the fears here and also in mainland China is that an opening or a too sudden shift away from zero COVID is just not doable because the vaccine is simply not good enough we saw some members of the executive council in Hong Kong who got it early on and were very you know patriotic and posting about it on social media, going back and getting a booster of the mnra vaccine because they turned out they didn't have any antibodies. Um, and I think one other thing is this: you know, China is developing in development of its own you know mnra vaccine. But I think you know it's worth noting that that's not like a slam dunk sure thing. You know, there was CureVac in Germany that attempted to do it, had a lot of hype around you know their mnra vaccine development, and they ended up you know, scuttling the plans and ditching it and saying they couldn't do it. Well, I mean, therefore, you really, you're, what you're alluding to there, as as well as the practicalities, is the prestige, the prestige of the two different systems, which is in me, increasingly emerging as a very important issue. Because in your piece for the Atlantic, you know, whether one, pre, one, one system, namely the West, can produce these amazing scientific advances and, and another, um, the Chinese system is, is still slightly behind. In your piece in the Atlantic, you actually suggest the pandemic has in some ways suited the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, I, I wonder, how, how do you come to that conclusion? I mean, I don't want to say suited. I would say that it's emerged at a time that, that China was already sort of, you know, turning, taking a bit of a, a turn inward on itself, kind of, you know, shutting itself away from, from the West and bunkering down a bit. And I think it's helped to expedite that, uh, you know, that situation, right? And I think in Hong Kong, you have people sometimes say that there's, you know, two issues here, that there's, you know, the political kind of crackdown that's going on. And then there's also COVID. Uh, and some people say they're leaving not because of the political situation, but they're leaving because of COVID. And that always makes me laugh. I think that they've become, you know, intertwined, right? You know, you hear the talk about national security and public health of the mainland in mainland China have become very intertwined with each other. You know, I don't think that that is wholly different, you know, in Hong Kong. National see, security and public health have become very intertwined, you say? Yeah. I mean, you see the use of, of you know, in Hong Kong for the past, you know, few months or, I mean, I guess years at this point, um, you know, the use of these onerous, you know, COVID restrictions to kind of early on when they still existed to target a lot of the pro-democracy groups when they were trying to have protests or when they were trying to, you know, gather events. It gave, you know, convenient cover again, deny march permits. You see it used in court now, you know, saying that they're, you know... So shutting the society of, down a bit. 
yeah, gathering for Tiananmen Memorial was a public health risk, um, you know, things like that. Um, so, I mean, I think it is given, you know, in Hong Kong and in China, given just strengthened the, the control that the state has over the population in a lot of ways that maybe was, you know, not totally predictable at the beginning of this. Which is what makes the decision about having the the Winter Olympics um, um, quite interesting, I think. I mean, I know it was decided, what, eight, six years ago or something, but, you know, by all accounts, the COVID risk seems to be being managed, um, but it, gee, it's a big risk for, for, for the Communist Party, I would have thought. How are the games, do you judge, being received in Hong Kong and in, in broader China? Because, I mean, in a way, it rebuts that idea that you need a COVID, dynamic COVID zero policy. It's interesting in, you know, in Hong Kong, the 2008 Olympics were a huge event, right? Uh, if you look at the polling at the time, there was like a high watermark for people's identity with the Chinese, you know, Chinese state rather than identity as being a Hong Konger. So there's just, you know, a huge and huge amount of kind of pride. Some of the events were in Hong Kong. Um, you know, the the dressage and equestrian events took place here in Sha Tin at the race course. In terms of how they're being received here now, you know, it seems to be very much a non-event. You know, Chinese state media is obviously kind of trying to hype up a few athletes and puts out, you know, various reports and, and tweets about them. But really in terms of organic kind of groundswell of excitement is here almost nil. And I think that that kind of stands in contrast to the uh, Tokyo Olympics, there was a couple uh, Hong Kong athletes who did really well. They had a record medal haul. They got a gold medal in fencing, a gold medal in swimming. There was a ton of excitement, almost like a moment of real kind of togetherness in Hong Kong that we haven't seen in a very long time. Um, you know, if anyone is expecting for that to happen again uh, with these Beijing Olympics, it, it's definitely not happening. And look, finally, um, this is a big year ahead, isn't it, for China uh, and Xi Jinping and the with the National People's Congress convening early next month. It convenes every five years, isn't it? And the Chinese Communist Party will hold its... Um, 20th Party Congress later in the year. Um, in fact, I think the People's Congress might be every every 10 years. Um, it, it, how do you judge? Look, Hong Kong's such an interesting place to have a perspective on, on mainland China. How do you judge um, his standing and his power now? If we look at kind of, you know, kind of the COVID situation, you know, she hasn't left China in over two years now. I think he there's tends to be every once in a while kind of rumors that bubble up or someone of importance will say something about, you know, there might be potential struggle for leadership or, you know, moderates rising up. That's, you know, wishful thinking. I think that this is that, that she and the and, and the party and you know his position seems to be one of extraordinary power and and, and historic sort of standing. I expect that to to continue. I don't see anything on the horizon that would kind of challenge that or just it's hard to read it. though isn't it it's it's notably obtuse and opaque sure yeah yeah absolutely um it's very difficult to to try to understand exactly obviously we say we'll only know in retrospect what happens um and look thank you very much indeed uh, tim i really appreciate your time Yes, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Hong Kong based journalist Tim McLaughlin a contributor to the Atlantic well, up next, does Australia have a class problem? Australia is sometimes described as the lucky country, a place where everyone gets a fair go. That's our binding myth, you could uh, say. 
Is it really true, though, that class here is not a barrier? Social, economic and cultural inequalities have always existed in Australia and are, in fact, rising. Many Australians live in entrenched poverty, but it's precarious and insecure labour in particular that's growing. And yet, class, you could say, is often missing from or obscured in our public and political debates. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues and with a federal election fast approaching, it's as vital a time as ever, surely, to delve into the realities of class in Australia. To tell us more, I'm joined by Steve Threadgold, who's co-edited a new book called Class in Australia. Steve's an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Newcastle and does a lot of work with young people in class. Steve, welcome. Hi, Geraldine. Thanks for having me on. What exactly do you see uh, the situation to be in this country today? Why are we so poor at talking about it? That's one of your central points. Yeah, um, it is. It's kind of class kind of haunts all our relations, I think, both economically, but even in the media and our pop culture. It, it's it's present, it's, but it's kind of haunts things. And we don't really like to talk about it very much for some reason. When you do hear, say, our political leaders talk about class, they tend to, like, what I would say, reverse it in a way. Like, so if we make an argument for, like, I don't know, taxing billionaires or having some kind of shared wealth, that's like all of a sudden there's some kind of class war against the rich or something. But it's really the only time you hear it. And the other way that inequality is talked about mostly is it's individualised. So if someone, you know, doesn't do well at school, loses their job, uh, or is in poverty, it's often they're blamed as an individual. They, they're lazy, they don't work hard enough, you know, or they made the wrong choices. But what we find is a class, that those kind of things like those kind of inequalities are much more systematic than that. Well, I mean, that's the old divide, isn't it, between the people who tended to come from, you know, basically a Marxist background, I don't mean that literally, uh, would look at things in the broad and say that, you know, you, you mustn't effectively blame individuals versus the a more, I suppose, um, libertarian view, which is so much does rest on the individual set of choices. So that is a very old divide, isn't it? That's right. And, and, and the, the notion of hard work in particular today is really celebrated. And of course, if, you know, some people maybe work harder than others and make the right choices and all that kind of stuff matters, but people start in different places. So, um, you know, you can work as hard as you want, but if you go to a pretty uh, a school that's, you know, a bit dodgy, doesn't have a lot of um, funding, it's really packed classes, no air conditioning, it's a bit of a different experience than, you know, going to a school with, I don't know, rowing and massive football fields and air conditioning and that kind of stuff. So these things are embedded um, throughout our social systems. Using that example, a child can work as hard as they want, but like more generally, it means that if you've got a bit of a head start by being in those kind of more privileged places, you know, more likely to achieve. So this is where I think the language of class is really important to be brought back into public, public kind of consciousness, I suppose, because otherwise it seems to me that inequalities don't get the proper explanation that they need and are mostly then kind of left to the kind of blame to the individual. Before we go any further, I'm, I must ask you then about, because even the language you're using, I suppose, positions you in a way, because, and you say part of the problem with discussing class is that usually it reverts down or to the political attitudes of the writers about class. And so, you know, you are clearly don't like what you're seeing. We should have that on the table, shouldn't we? Yeah, I, I, well, journalistically, for instance, I'd really like to see um, journalists 
when they're talking about various social problems using invoking class privilege more. The problem being, I suppose, and I've written about this in my own work, is that um, our media class tends to be quite middle class, right? So they tend not to have the um, experiences themselves and the emotional relations to some of the problems we're talking about. So then it's easier for them, I suppose, to leave that kind of thing out. So, um, But definitely, I think, starting to think a little bit more about these wide social problems that we have, rising inequalities, huge precarity in the labour market particularly. And what's interesting about that too is precarity is rising up the class system into the middle classes. And so if we can think about these things on a more systematic basis like that, um, I think the public will be better informed about what's going on. It's very much a, a book of sociology. There's quite a lot of sociology jargon in this. It's not a sort of a simple little, you know, sto- uh, storytelling. But you do cite some very interesting things that are worthwhile thinking about. For instance, the TV program Struggle Street, which uh, on SBS, you say, uh, well, showed a lot about class and its confusions. I think one of your writers talks about this. How do, how do you see uh, or how do you explain, in your words, what it tended to show? Well, yeah, Penny Rossiter from the University of Western Sydney wrote that um, uh, chapter and it's a really interesting chapter. Um, and what she, what she talks about in this is the way that um, something like poverty is framed on our um, television shows is really important. Um, And so in that chapter, for instance, she talks even about some of the different techniques of the way that cameras linger on things and the way that the various kind of things that represent people, you know, like garbage or their house or something is kind of stands in and emotes, invokes emotion in the the, um, watcher that may not really be a reality of the situation of that person. It also so, sort of tends again, to say, I think, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, it, it tends to say, thank God I'm not there. Yeah, definitely. When we're consuming that really as a form of entertainment as much as a documentary, um, people yeah, people watch those things in different ways. So there's definitely a, a case of that as well. But um, what I think the point is, and, I, and I've kind of written about this myself in the past as well, is that, again, a lot of the voiceover, a lot of the contextual um, parts of those shows tend to elide the more structural things that are going on and focus on the kind of you know, messiness and, and struggles of the day-to-day life. Now, it's really important that that stuff gets represented. But again, when it's kind of seems to be all about Johnny made the wrong choice in um, high school or whatever, and then this mm. is where he's at, um, that to me kind of then becomes a problematic representation. There's quite a bit about how the middle class um, draws away from maybe their own origins in the working class and so on, and then thinks, again, the relief for being away from it, and then the standing back and looking, and then the, the distance between, say, uh, people in the middle class and people perceived to be in the working class. Um, and someone like Jackie Lambie cuts right through that and speaks so much from the heart um, about what she has gone through and makes it very vivid, which is a very interesting role she plays. Absolutely. And um, she is a person that seems to speak often about the views of the disadvantage and she's experienced that herself. Um, Others, you know, people on the left criticise her for many kind of other kinds of views. Um, But again, the class relation here in terms of the way that Jackie's represented in the media, the, the piss taken out of her a lot, you know, in terms of the way she speaks. She doesn't speak like a private school person, you know, Sean McAuliffe has taken, uh, you know, has whole characters based around that kind of stuff. So the class relation and the class analysis of someone like Jackie is quite complex because she's a very rare instance of someone from a relatively disadvantaged background 
with a voice in the Australian public sphere, but beyond when she gets to speak for herself, much of the writing and talking and representations of her tend to be parodies. Well, look, that's so interesting. I was thinking about the work you've done yourself, as you explain, researching the terms bogan and hipster uh, as opposite ends of the spectrum and what these terms tell us about class. Now, why are they so problematic for you? Yeah, well, um, they're they're very interesting ways because I think they're kind of Clayton's class categories, if you know what I mean. Remember the kind (laughs) of Clayton's drink, the Mm. the drink you have when you're not having a drink because it didn't have alcohol in it? Um, the, they kind of ways that do allow us and ways that class are represented and spoken about in the public sphere without really talking about class. Um, and the chapter by Deb War and Keith Jacobs and Henry Patton Oster in our um, book do this, and also uh, I've written about it in another book. Um, Bogan has tended to stand in for, you know, kind of vulgar working class tastes. Um, um, hipster is kind of, kind of ironic middle class consumer cultures. Um, and throughout the kind of 2000s, there's been so much written about those two figures in the media. Um, and they tend to, again, stand in for those things. But what's interesting about those things is that the hipster has often been written about as a quite ironic, almost playful figure. And the bogan tends to um, elicit much more kind of denigration. And I think the reason for that, again, is um, if you do a class analysis of who's writing, is again, our media classes tend to be quite well-educated, probably have tastes that overlap a lot with the hipster. Um, And so the problem of the hipster tends to be seen a little bit more ironically. A lot of the writing about the hipster was kind of playful and and joking, whereas the bogan is generally invoked to kind of say, that person's vulgar, you know, that VB drinking person, you know, who drives the Commodore, are doing things wrong. They don't have any taste they live in these big houses and, you know, have big TVs and do all the wrong things as opposed to, you know, my kind of middle-class lifestyle. Um, but, yeah, and, and what's other interesting as well is the hipster is kind of this uni- – sorry, this global figure, like it's used around the world, particularly in the West, where different countries have different versions of the bogan. You know, there's the chav in the UK and the redneck or whatever in the US. They tend to have more specific versions. But, yeah, the, what, what does happen with these figures is they change over time, but they become representational of – cultural aspects of class, particularly around taste. And and then by, by using those figures, you don't need to say, you know, working class people are this. You can kind of invoke the bogan um, and it kind of stands in for that kind of thing, I suppose. Um, Look, yeah. I, can, can I just – I, I thought you might make more – and you have a, you have a bit, and very interestingly, but about education, uh, that, that it complicates a lot of these neat assumptions. I mean, people like David Runzeman, I'm always going on about this with his, you know, Talking Politics podcast. He just thinks it is the great divide and it's just it – just, it, it determines so much educationally, economically, you know, in terms of assessment. Um, and you say that – there's a lot of sort of perceived moral virtue wrapped up in the the middle classing of people, often associated with education, and then they they really do, without even necessarily recognising it, um, can start to consider themselves very differently. Now, can do you think that that is that is a process very much underway in Australia? Definitely, yeah. Now, now we have some um, really good uh, analysis of class. Um, in education in Australia. And education is a kind of um, field of study where class has been really, I think, well used to elicit what's going on. So um, c- certainly in very simple things like the private-public divide and the levels of funding that go on there. But um, 
Very more broadly, from a sociological perspective, education systems are seen to tend to reflect the needs of the more wealthy and the more privileged. Um, and then, like, schools and teachers reflect those values. So people from disadvantaged backgrounds almost have to come into those systems and learn to be someone else. And so education systems are at the very heart of the way that class is socialised in Australia. It, it allows people to think people in relatively privileged schools will feel more comfortable in those areas. They're quite exclusionary. They set up networks into business and politics and other powerful institutions. If you're not in, in those networks, you're largely excluded from them, you know, in terms of who you know and having access to them. But also, if you're not part of that socialisation process, you'll feel uncomfortable in those circles anyway. And you're likely to kind of opt out or exclude yourself. So there's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy going on there as well. So the cultural and symbolic aspects of class are really interesting to think about that in education systems as much as the economic. Uh, look, maybe we should sort of gradually draw to a close because you could talk forever about this, couldn't you, um, to politics because um, undoubtedly it'll play a role, whether it's named as that, as that in the election. And as you say, from John Howard's battlers to Scott Morrison's quiet Australians, politi politicians keep using their own class definitions and this quiet Australians is such an interesting one. Why do they keep doing this? Is it a winning formula? Yeah, look, I'm not an expert on whether the those terms kind of make people electable, but they certainly seem to speak to the kind of hopes and fears of, of many Australians. I mean, um, I think there was Howard's Battlers, but he also used to use the term Middle Australia quite a lot, and um, that was actually a term coined by a sociologist. Uh, so, yeah, they, they kind of these again. These it's almost like the drawing of a figure of the kind of. What, what's the normal thing in Australia that deserves to be looked after by politicians? And it's like the, you know, the nuclear family, the suburban hardworking family kind of stuff is kind of what um, is um, normally emphasised there. And unfortunately, it's always seems to be the white version of that. So these things, I think, are interesting to think like that. But um, what's, well, what's why also... Why do you say <laughs> that? Why do you say that, though? Because what do you mean that the white version of it is emphasised? Well, our, our politicians are constantly dog-whistling towards, you know, white Australians, Anglo-Australians. That tends to be what they represent. But I think what's interesting about the quiet Australian thing and when it comes to the class analysis is that I think the pandemic has brought out aspects of this that um, what, what's happening recently, for instance, with the changes in the rules about uh, people being allowed to go back to work much more quicker, What's why, why are truck drivers and things like that being encouraged to go back to work? after five days instead of seven days, you know. Um, the quiet Australian there, the hard-working truckie that's delivering our our food and our online shopping, apparently their health isn't as important, right? Um, they can go back in five days, not seven, right? Because why is that? Because the whole system's breaking down without the hard work of those people. So they're the kind of quiet Australians that those labels, I think, have been dedicated to before. But, like, what's happening in this pandemic, we're actually seeing the real importance of that hidden labour in the system that's largely ignored mostly, I think, by um, our leaders. You can see here what's happening there, if, and this is a very much a class relation, is that our politicians are just seeing these people as human capital. They're, they're just seeing workers here. They're not really seeing, you know, actual humans here that are sick and might need a bit of time off work. We need to get them back to work. Why? Because I need to get my online shopping in. So I think, again, that the pandemic is bringing out some of these class inequalities um, in ways that um, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens, how people feel treated in those kind of terms at the next election. 
Yes, there's all sorts of things that are going to be tested in this yeah. <laughs> whenever it happens. Yeah, that's true. And look, Steve, <laughs> thank you very much indeed for, um, you know, winding away through it and uh, listeners will have their own thoughts, no doubt, but I appreciate your time. Definitely. Thanks so much for having us on. I really appreciate it. Stephen Thre- uh, Threadgold from the University of Newcastle. with It's quite an academic book. The co-editor of uh, Class in Australia, Rogers, come through and said, now I use hipster and bogan equally derogatively. In fact, some of your remarks are very amusing. Um, So thank you. Keep keep them coming. Uh, And we're going to entertain you in the last part of our Saturday Extra with stories from the historic Ocean Pool for Women in Sydney. Up next. Yes, you've no doubt heard of Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Well, here's an outgrowth of that. A woman's, a women's only harbour pool, the McIver's Ladies' Baths, to be specific. A short walk up the hill from Coogee Beach in Sydney's eastern suburbs. It's well hidden, and that's the point, of course. No men allowed. It's a winding path down towards the not particularly large sheltered rock pool. And you'll pass women, so my producer Margie says, of all shapes, sizes and nationalities, sunbathing with a book, giggling with their friends. Well, now a lovely book of stories has emerged about that pool from women who've used it over the years. The book is called The Women's Pool and the editor of the collection of stories, Lynn Spender, joins me now. It's a long time since I've spoken to you, Lynn. Hello there. Hello, Geraldine. It's lovely to speak to you. Um, There are some wonderful stories in this book, beautifully written about finding love, about scandal, about growing old in community. What prompted the idea of collecting them, please? I think the initial idea was that I was aware that this year, 2022, is the 100th anniversary of women volunteers managing the pool. Uh, We have an arrangement with Randwick Council and for that 100 years, women have come to the pool, looked after it, cleaned it, done a whole range of things to maintain a safe space for women to swim, relax, talk, Um, In the old days, they had what was called the Thursday Married Ladies Club, who came every Thursday, had lunch, had swimming races, much laughter. They were allowed to drink in those days at the pool. And they had these races where people fiercely contested who was going to win the the race this week. And there was one woman, apparently, who used to uh, swim across the pool rather than up and down the pool. And another woman got a trophy for turning up. (laughs) <laughs> but it was the most amazing group of mainly older women who were, it was called the Thursday Married Ladies Club, but many of them were widows, some of them were unmarried, but they came together every Thursday to, I suppose, make a community of women in a safe place in Coogee. It was wonderful. Yes, look, there's there's a lot of lovely stories. There is some gorgeous, a Tess Durack story right at the start. Um, why aren't there any willies in here, Mum? Ah, yes, you can always depend on a preschooler to get straight to the point. Her five-year-old son was in the uh, the dressing room um, uh, or pe- where people were getting dressed and um, realised that there were no people quite like him. Uh, when was the decision made about no men? Look, the, the pool was almost always um, made available for women. It was opened by Randwick Council in about 1876 
And then it was managed by Rose McIver, um, who made it available for women. That was a time when there was no mixed swimming available for women. It was seen as unseemly for women's bodies to be exposed to the male gaze. And so women had very few opportunities to swim in a safe place. And so from mm, about 1912 till 1922, Rose McIver managed the pool, thus the name of the pool. And then 1922, it was passed over to the Ranwick and Coogee Ladies Swimming Club. And they, in one form or another, have managed it for 100 years until today. Look, let, let's just go to some of the stories. There's a rather moving one by a Vietnamese-Australian called Lai Nguyen who writes of coming over as a boat person in the 1970s. Tell us, would you please, her story and how the ladies' baths helped her overcome a deep-seated fear of water. Lai tells of three experiences with water when she was in Vietnam as a child, how her mother was afraid of the water and the girls were not allowed, her sisters and herself, were not allowed to go near the water and had to be very careful. So she had a sort of fear of the water. Then when she got a bit older, she was allowed to go to university to study. And to get there, she had to go by boat from her village. And the water then opened up an amazing uh, vista of places she'd never been before. So she did go to university. And then because of the political situation, she and her cousin got onto a boat to come to Australia as one of those famed Vietnamese boat people. It was terrifying. They had to hide under covers until um, they got out into the ocean sea. It was a leaky boat. It was old. There were pirates. They had no idea that they'd survive Anyway, finally they did and they got to Australia and she started a life here, embodying what we know sort of as stories, but in reality she sewed at home to raise her two sons. She got cancer and her doctor told her that it might be good for her to move to the seaside and to have salt water. So she came to Coogee, but of course she couldn't swim. She was terrified of the water. She tried swimming lessons, but they didn't work. And somebody said, why don't you go to the women's pool? They have swimming there. So she then tells the story very amusingly of learning to swim at the women's pool and how one day she was there and she had a rubber ring around and flippers on and goggles. She said she used to call them snoggles. And the ladies at the pool laughed at her, but kindly, kindly, she says. And they helped me with my English. So she's out there one day and she actually lets her feet off the ground and starts moving. And yeah. then she finds she can't put her feet back on the ground because she's got a rubber ring around her. But eventually, one of the women at the pool takes her on, teaches her to swim, and at 56, she was able to swim unassisted at the women's pool. And she's still there, and she's delightful, and she brings food for people, beautifully cooked Vietnamese food. She makes masks for us. She's the most wonderful person. My goodness, what a story. Um Oh, gosh, I've got to choose now because we haven't got a lot of time left. We can't leave out the two great early female Olympians, Minna Wiley and Fanny Durack. They trained at the 30-metre pool because they couldn't go to the other public pools. Is that right? 
Well, they could go to Wiley's. Mina Wiley's dad ran Wiley's pool. But the time for women was so restricted that they found it easier just to go to the women's pool. And they trained there. And after much kerfuffle, they were allowed to go to the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm. First women swimmers to go from Australia to an Olympics. And they won the 100 metres gold and silver medals Mm. and became Australia's first women's sporting heroes, really. So there's a really interesting story about them. And I got onto this book in part because I had read the PhD of a young woman called Grace Barnes and she had written it in search of Mina Wiley. And much of the PhD talked about women's bodies and how for the first time in the early 20th century, women were allowed to take off their corsets and their (laughs) crinolines and their buttons and collars and feel free in water, many of them for the first time, many of them realising that their bodies were nowhere near as weak as they'd been led to believe. And that's one of the joys of the women's pool. You can be yourself. Yes. Oh, and look, we, we won't have time to, but it is rumoured that Indigenous women used the pool before colonisation as a birthing and bathing place. And one of the stories is by Mary Goslett, who's a Ewan Bundawang woman, uh, who describes uh, interacting with the pool in the six Indigenous seasons. So it's really, it's there's a lot, a lot of Australia in there. Uh, so congratulations for uh, for, for collating it all. Uh, I, I really do. Uh, I'm so glad you did. Well, there were many nights with co-editors doing the copy editing of the book and arguing about dangling participles and misplaced <laughs> models. Unfortunately, we did it with a bottle of champagne. Very so. good, very good. Look, I'm, I'm sorry, I, we're just looking at the time going away. Thank you very much, Lynn, Lynn Spender, who's the uh, editor of the collection of stories about the McIver's Ladies' Baths in Sydney called The Women's Pools, published by Spinifex and in bookstores. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.